In October of 2019, I read an article by a biracial journalist entitled My Biracial Life, a Memoir, What 25 Years with Wild, Chaotic, Complex, Crazy, Ambiguous Hair Has Taught Me. I loved that article and found it of interest not only personally but professionally, so I sent the author a message on Twitter. I got no response. It's true, I'm more or less a ghost on all forms of social media. But in my defense, I will say that when I finally did log on in November of that year, I saw a message from a fellow biracial journalist asking me for an interview, and I responded. A few weeks later, I met Malcolm at his office, and we had a two-hour conversation, me recording with my very low-tech iPhone. I had no idea that that conversation would change the trajectory of my work and my life. Our talk that day became part of the first episode of the Demystifying Diversity podcast. Here's a short excerpt from that interview. It feels like there's something very distinct to the biracial experience where it's like, well, which side are you closer to? And somehow that gets defined by external appearance as opposed to culture or experience. That's that's so true. I don't know if this happened to you, but I remember like kids, even just growing up, being also it's interesting because kids are so concerned sometimes about things having to fit into categories, or whatever. But people asking me that question, like, well, you're meant to like which, but like which one, kind of like, you know, as if like I had to pick at like you know age nine or something. And it's like no, like it's never really been like that. It's a, just a different thing. Throughout the years, I kept thinking about that interview. Until you just said that, I didn't really realize how momentous that conversation was for both of us. It was so multi-layered and felt fulfilling in a way that I've rarely felt in my life. Talking to you not only made me reflect on my biracial identity, it made me want to explore similar conversations with other multiracial people. A few years passed, Darylise and I both continued working separately as freelancers, and occasionally we'd send each other articles or updates about the podcast we were working on. And then last year, she sent me another email. Once again, it took me a few weeks to reply. Yeah, but when you did, and I asked if you wanted to collaborate on a podcast about being biracial, you didn't hesitate. You were all in. Of course. How could I not be? Well, I'm glad you were. And I'm so glad that we've had the opportunity to spend the last year working together on this, the On Being Biracial podcast. Darylise and I interviewed roughly 50 people about their experiences as people whose racial backgrounds are not monoracial, and how they navigate a world that often defines race in binary ways. We had a lot of nuanced, complex conversations with others about their lives and thoughts and experiences, but we wanted this last episode to end with a conversation between the two of us, because that's how it all started, and it feels fitting to end as we began. I'm Malcolm Burnley. And I'm Darylise Lyons. This is episode 10 of this season of the On Being Biracial podcast. Malcolm and I had a few conversations and we've compiled those chats, inserting some clarifying connective tissue when necessary. And he and I and our producer, Emily, thought that this would be a fun and interesting way to wrap up a season that's been really illuminating and, at least for us, rewarding. I want to talk about, like, what made you say yes to this project? Like, can we talk about why we even decided to take this thing on? What were we thinking? I think for me, it was the opportunity to work with you, which I was really excited to do and exceeded my expectations. But it was specifically you and knowing your work and loving your work. But then secondly, also my experience about writing about my own identity and just about race more generally, I realized that most of my editors on those projects were white. I think largely just by virtue of That's true in journalism more broadly. There's a diversity issue across the field, which is improving a little bit. 
And that made me realize that even with that Philly Mag story, the essay I wrote about my own identity, which I wrote in 2014, I reread that and some of it's just, oh, you know, I feel like I'm a better writer now and these things. But also I felt like I was writing that story subconsciously or just due to the publication I was writing for and the editors who were helping me was kind of writing it for a a white audience almost, or it just felt like a lot of the, the writing I've done on race. And that wasn't true of all my writing, but getting the opportunity to explore these issues with someone who's also experienced them. And then of course, our interviewees also having experienced them. I think that's what really drew me to it was wanting to bounce off my own lived experience and and to think about this stuff with someone else who who's lived it. My hope is that we were able to do a holistic representation that I think also isn't often done. Like there might be first person narratives out there about various multiracial experiences, but I think that's very different than hearing a number of different voices with different perspectives. Like my hope is, is that we let people kind of derive their own conclusions or have the stories of others reflect and refract their own experiences so that they can think about themselves in different ways. My hope is that people will be finding our project for a long time for that reason. And I do think, I think there were so many perspectives and there were so many moments, so many moments that, I heard one of our interviewees say something that just, uh, I don't even know the term to say, but was just put words to something that I have wrestled with or thought about, but just never could connect the dots. Even like Matt Johnson, uh, I should have pulled up the exact quote. I later found the exact quote. Here's Matt Johnson, the National Book Award winning author. I think at this point, eventually it took me writing about the mixed experience directly in a book I did called Loving Day that just put it to the side for me and also showed me the last question that I was asking about mixed experience. And that last question was, is it possible to have a mixed identity and be African-American of a mixed identity and identify as being mixed or or biracial or however you want to phrase it and not have that tainted by anti-Blackness? Because when I was growing up, if you said you were mixed, it was a way of saying, of distancing yourself from Blackness and a way of passively endorsing white supremacy. What Matt was talking about in the clip was at least his upbringing and the feedback or perspective that he had gained from his neighborhood and the people he was around was identifying as anything other than Black, even being mixed, was somehow saying that you were distancing yourself from from being Black. And yeah, I mean, that's something I note in the episode in part about how I related to that. There's just little things like here and there that were so amazing. And and especially some of the hopeful, I think just really hopefulness of hearing how other people have navigated these feelings, these questions. And by and large, I mean, I think people coming to some type of stasis or some type of wholeness with being able to walk through the world. I was really encouraged by and uplifted by people's stories and how they've been able to find their respective ways. One of the things that I just want to call out is that perhaps those who spoke with us have grappled with race more and are more willing to integrate 
their senses of selves because in some ways, and we called this out on the podcast, but it's self-selecting. The people who were going to talk to us are people who have thought about their multiracial backgrounds and have come to a sense of who they are and are willing to have conversations about race. I don't know. I mean, I like to believe that that's a universal experience. I do believe it's available to anyone to have this type of introspection and to do whatever they need to do to find a sense of identity and self and community that they can live with. But I also feel like perhaps some of the people that have more struggles around their racial identity in terms of like more present day struggles and don't feel a sense of wholeness probably weren't going to be interested in talking to us. Yeah, I mean, that is such a good point. Again, just pointing to the need for more projects like this and more data and stuff. Yeah. We intentionally prioritize diversity in our interviewees, not just in regard to racial identity. Darylise and I wanted to have intersectional conversations about the variety of mixed experiences. I'm really proud of that, even if it was impossible to cover everything. Yeah, although we did cover more than we originally set out to at the beginning of this season and at the beginning of this project. But I think that's just the nature of reporting and interviewing various people that the topic expands and widens and diversifies as you go. I will say that those who spoke with us, while diverse in many ways, also had in common that they were all introspective about their experiences, willing to talk about them openly and pretty grounded in themselves. So whether that's representative of most mixed folks or not, I found it hopeful. I'll take that. On the list of all the unintended outcomes of a production process, hope is a pretty good one. We reference many times in the series about the tragic mulatto stereotype or the tragic mulatto trope. And I think without even realizing it, that trope has been so prevalent and pervasive and powerful in my life. And I think speaking about seeing the world maybe too much through a hyper-racialized lens due to being mixed... I think I've funneled, especially growing up, but even still to this day, funnel so many of my experiences through that stereotype in the sense of being caught between worlds, feeling isolated, feeling not enough of one thing and too much of another, and accepting it in a lot of ways. Doing this podcast and seeing how much hopefulness in other people's stories really makes me realize I need to incorporate or fully embrace some of that. Yeah, I'm smiling and I'm going to say this thing, but I probably won't consent to having it be on the record, but I'm just going to say the same thing anyway. I did consent to having it be on the record. As hard as I try, I just can't help myself from being an open book. I feel like, and my sister referenced this, Tyler referenced this in the sibling, the family episode that we did. And she talked about how she and I were both raised to be, she put it like biracially positive. And I feel like, you know, sort of growing up, the narrative was always like, oh, like you're so special. You're so unique. Like, look how, you know, like I felt like I was kind of on the inside of my white family and I was everyone's favorite, but I was inside of like my black networks. And like, I was kind of everyone's favorite because I was like this different, unique person, right? In some ways, but I belonged everywhere, quote unquote. And I think possibly other people never wanted me to feel like bad because of my identity or like an outsider. So I think they went overboard in making me feel like wanted and loved and special and all of this stuff. And yet, in hindsight, 
that feeling of being like special also, I think, led to a feeling of being separate. Right. So like I developed an eating disorder and I like had like struggled with like depression and like suicidal ideation and like all these things. And I feel like I sort of like became like the tragic person in this depiction of me as like, oh, like nothing is missing. Like you're so great. Sort of, I think in a backward way kind of led to me feeling alienated and perhaps invited more tragedy into my life. So it's like a weird, yeah. I mean, I don't know that there's a way to to do it, but I think maybe both of us sort of like got these opposite ends of the spectrum that were like, neither one was all that helpful. Malcolm and I spoke a lot during this season about the importance of identity and how intersectional and positional it is. We talked about how identities evolve and how our understandings of ourselves can and often do shift over time. And as we revisited our own conceptions of ourselves, we found ourselves sharing about how this project has affirmed and reinforced many things about our own experiences, while also surprising us in a variety of ways. One of the most surprising things in general was sitting down with Jordan Davis and like actually being like, wait a minute, what is happening in a world where someone who is biracial, is mixed, was in a white supremacist group for years. And I think that was one of the things, not on a personal level necessarily that I found surprising, but just I found it so surprising. And it spoke so much about how race is socially constructed and how people's experiences around race can be so different. I mean, ultimately, I do believe that every person is going to be far better off and is going to be better off in community if they can reconcile and embrace all the parts of themselves, however they identify. It's an interview that I've referenced quite a lot in my everyday life just because it opened my eyes to the fact that I have this belief, I have this narrative that communities of color are safer for multiracial folks than white spaces. And in fact, what I found from these interviews is that people's experiences around race, and not to slip into the tragic mulatto stereotype, but like that people's experiences around race are very dependent on the specific communities that they're exposed to. And that a lot of communities, whether Black or white or Asian or Latinx or whatever, can in fact target people and be really painful and really uncomfortable and that belonging is an essential human need. And in the absence of belonging in the spaces where we might want to belong, we're going to go find other spaces. And so I think Jordan's story was really striking to me and I understood it, but it also made me really, really sad. And I just wonder how many other people are out there feeling excluded from the communities where they really would want to belong. And in the absence of that, going into spaces that foster hatred, whether of themselves or of other people. And so, I, yeah, that's one that really stood out to me as very surprising and disturbing. We spoke for a while about our various impactful moments throughout this season. Including, but not limited to the moment Samante Cruz described what it means to be mixed gender, which borrowed from their experiences of being mixed race or Lisa Funderberg talking about her own term, stealth mulatto, to describe her experience. There was a heartbreaking tape from Carter O'Brien Ford and Jordan, who Darylise just noted, who shared about their childhood traumas. But that was balanced by the infectious positivity of Jewel Love and Chantal Fitzgerald, whose voices are still in my head, and I'm thankful for that. 
There's been so much this season that's affirmed my experiences, but if I'm being honest, a lot of the work that we did also challenged and stretched me personally and professionally. Me too. A couple of the ways the podcast challenged me was by prompting me to revisit the what are you question and by encouraging me to grapple with my identity in ways that I hadn't actively thought about in quite a while. I'll admit that I still haven't reconciled my racial identity and racialized experiences to the degree I'd like to. Not just within myself, but also within the various groups I belong to and want to be a part of. Yeah, I think I still struggle with this question that Matt Johnson raised around, is there any element of identifying as mixed or biracial that is diminishing or signaling some type of separateness from my Black identity? And essentially, not whether I feel that way, but whether me identifying as such, as mixed, is... Damn it. I don't even put this. It's really hard to talk about. It's whether it's almost more important in order to open up... Whether whether me claiming that identity and saying as such is actually shutting down certain conversations, or because other people hold certain assumptions or opinions around that if that actually is going to close off some relationships with or or limit certain relationships with black people I meet. I guess it's just really caused me to struggle continuously with what my identity really is and then how to label it and the implications and consequences of what that label is and just how tricky that is around that. And so while it didn't change me to reconsider that I believe I am biracial and mixed because of the experiences I've had, not just, and because of my ancestry and a whole host of other factors, it did continue to complicate the idea of knowing how I should identify to others or how I should signal that and whether what feels most truthful to my lived experience is the most important factor in that or whether all the political and just like, yeah, how you signal, you know, is, are there instances where that's more important, I guess, in some ways. So yeah, it's, it's difficult and and tricky. And so I guess I still haven't found, look, no matter how I, if I'm asked to identify, no matter how I do, including mixed, there's a tinge of feeling like it's not quite right still. I don't feel like I have questions about my personal identity, but I do feel like that identity sometimes does complicate my feelings of belonging in a designated space. Yeah. Word Radio is Philadelphia's home for progressive Black Talk media. For 20 years, WURD has been the voice of the community, providing information, insights, and conversations on the issues that matter to Black people in Philadelphia and beyond. From politics to pop culture, wellness to wealth, Word Radio's dynamic hosts cover news through a progressive Black lens and perspective. Tune in for live programming every day at wordradio.com. Download the Word Radio app or listen in Philadelphia on 900 AM or 96.1 FM. Follow Word Radio on social media to mark your calendar for an exciting variety of community events. And become a member of the Forward Movement to show your support for progressive Black talk media.
Working on this podcast has very much reinforced the privileges that have come from my racial identity as a black and white biracial person. And it's prompted me to think about things like how I grew up in a predominantly white town with access to white schools and to all the resources and connections that I've had throughout my life and the money and power and influence that come with having grown up in a rich white town. At the same time, I've reflected on the access to culture and influence and opportunities that have come from growing up surrounded by powerful black people. And later on, professionally, having my black identity propel me forward in many ways. For example, I belong to the National Association of Black Journalists. I've had the opportunity to guest host for Word Radio. I built a business and a brand around diversity, equity, and inclusion education. I've given a TEDx talk about race. I've had the unique opportunity to do this project, this On Being by racial project, and I've interviewed incredible and influential people. I feel like I've had the privilege to go into many spaces and to belong in many spaces that I'd never have had if I were monoracial. And at the same time, I recognize that in some of these very same spaces, there are aspects of my identity and my experience that also make me an outsider. It's a unique position we hold not only as biracial people, but black and white biracial people. And that comes with a complicated legacy and complex intersections. It's important to be aware of that positionality. I was thinking about how in David's work, I'm referring to David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, just the perspective that he gave when he was talking about awareness of our positionality and how important that is. And I love that people are having that conversation. So he was sort of like, yeah, like be mindful of the space that you take up wherever you are and be mindful of not centering whiteness and be mindful of, I, I don't know, I just I just love that the conversation around race is getting more and more nuanced and around identity and intersectionality. And I'm so grateful to be part of a time when these conversations are happening and where people are shifting their paradigms. And I, I wish it would happen more quickly, but I'm, I don't know, I'm just, I feel honored to be witnessing that. We spoke about how things have changed and are changing over time, and highlighted even the differences between the adults we interviewed for this season and the young people we spoke with last season for the Youth Voices episodes. And I think for me, one of the things that stood out about school was we're talking to adults about their experiences in school, looking back retrospectively. And I was just mentally comparing and contrasting that with the three Youth Voices episodes that we did. And I think people talked about a lot less like bullying in the Youth Voices episodes and a lot less feeling isolated and alienated and a lot less about their teachers' insensitivity and these traumatic experiences that they've had at school. They spoke more about like their friendships and feeling like they belonged. And and so I'm not sure if that's just anecdotal or like just by virtue of the particular people that we interviewed, but I hope that that's a sign that educational experiences are getting better over time. And I know there were kids like Jackson and Zoe and that did call out being bullied in the Youth Voices episodes. It just, it didn't seem to me to be quite as endemic. Like it felt almost like almost every other person that we spoke to talked about being targeted in some way in school on the basis of their identity for this series. And that felt really disheartening to me. We're probably the only moments where just the whole argument that we really poured cold water on about just like more multiracial babies, like leading to an end of racism. And of course, that's not going to happen. But just the idea of that more kids sharing this experience and there just being more of them that some of the problematic cultural behavior that surrounds the multiracial experience may go by the wayside. I just, I do think there's something there. 
Speaking of self-acceptance, I'll always remember your conversation with Ashanti Martin, the general manager of Word Radio, and shout out to Word for supporting this podcast. Ashanti, I think, said something to the effect of, I think of myself as an outsider, and then because I have tended to feel like an outsider over the course of my life, then I have done some outsider things. I have to say, I definitely, and I still to this day, always feel like an outsider in just everything. I think of myself as an outsider. And then because you tend to feel like an outsider because you're mixed, you tend to do more outsider things and have more outsider tastes. And I thought about that cycle of one of the things that for me has been really, I know this came up in one of my conversations with Azaria, I don't remember what episode it was in, but I have always felt very liberated by this feeling of I'm not trying to measure myself against some arbitrary standard because I don't fit into this existing category. So I can sort of step outside the mold because there is no mold that I'm seeing that accurately represents who I am and what you know what my experience is. So like I felt liberated by that to pursue my own dreams and aspirations and goals and do what I want to do and kind of be an outsider. But I've also felt really sad in some ways. In high school, I never had one group that I fit in with. I fit in with six or seven different groups, but I felt like I could bring only little parts of me to each of them. And I and I feel that way still as an adult, like I do all these different kinds of things with different kinds of people. And maybe that's just what it is to be an adult, but I don't have a group of friends where we're all in the same stage of life and we're all doing the same things and we're in parallel industries. It's not like that. My life feels very much and has always felt very much like a patchwork quilt of belonging. Mm, yeah. Love that. What you just said. Cool. Well, thanks. Patchwork yes. quilt of belonging. That's so, that's so nice. <laughs> yeah. Let's keep it in. That moment between Malcolm and myself made me think about all the ridiculously funny behind-the-scenes moments that happened this season, like when I'd misread a word or when my leg would fall asleep or when I'd get a case of the funeral laughs during a recording session. Or I'd have to record in the bathroom with a blanket over my head for sound quality. Or when we'd stop recording until my cat stopped scratching the litter box. Or when we'd be reading the script and go on a complete diversion like this one. Plenty of people have assumed that a rise in interracial relationships would result in more tolerance and less ostracization over time, but there has been substantial research showing a lot more of a complex picture than we might expect. Let me try again. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh no. No, I'm just, I'm so stupid. Oh no. Oh. No, I don't know. I'm so like, you know, when your brain goes like five steps ahead, like my brain just like did like some stupid thing. And then Dude, wait, let me. I'm this is a wild guess. But when I said ostracization, did you think of an ostrich? No. <laughs> okay. Because <laughs> that's where I went. But that, but that's really great. I, you, now I will for time immemorial. Yeah. Okay. No, no, no. Oh my god. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm okay. so stupid. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it's okay, okay. <laughs> well, I thought about like poor Paul so yesterday. 
So what happened was yesterday I was recording alone and I like picked my nose because I was recording alone and then I realized I was on video. Oh no. Paul like, couldn't see me. That's what I was laughing about. And then I couldn't stop laughing about it. And then I didn't want to say it because then it would like, I'd be calling it out on the record. So that, yeah, that's where my brain went. All right. <laughs> Plenty of people have assumed that a rise in interracial Plenty of people have assumed that a rise in interracial families would result in more tolerance and less ostracization over time, but there's been substantial research showing a more complex picture than we might expect. Ostrich. <laughs> now that's where I'm going. Ah, I don't know what. <laughs> yeah. I have no idea what they sound like. I think that's a seagull. <laughs> I know, that was, was so weird. Why did I do that? <laughs> oh, no. Or there were the less fun moments, like when I had an emergency appendectomy a few weeks before our launch. Or when my partner had her own emergency appendectomy and ended up in the hospital for about a week. Not to compare the two. It's been a lot. And the thing is that listeners only hear the finalized product when everything is together and presentable. Which I guess goes back to our conversation about the episode we did on art and culture. This was one of the episodes I was most excited to do. And I was really, I'm just... My both my parents and my brother, they're all artists. And so I don't know, I just, I think a lot probably more of who I am has come from, I don't want to say just pop culture, but just like art and culture, probably more than even like the people who, including my parents in my lives. That's kind of like how they often, maybe because they're artists, I felt would kind of teach lessons through us watching something or something. Anyway, so I was I was really excited to do the episode. And I think one of my takeaways really was I haven't watched all of the more recent interpretations of the mixed experience that we reference in terms of shows and movies. But based on what I read, which maybe is not fair, I still feel like there's a lot of work to be done. Like representation one of my takeaways was this was a classic case of representation is improving and it's super meaningful and that's a great start, but also really delving into more of the issues as opposed to just having characters or plots that touch on these things. And I guess just like the, I still think societally there's work to be done with incorporating yeah, actors who are racially ambiguous or who are mixed, not just casting them in roles, but yeah, fully kind of exploring the meaning of what them as a character would be dealing with, um, like not making race invisible, which certainly some of the examples we showed, they do tackle that. But yeah, I think, I think there's ground, there's still ground to be covered. And it's a weird, I think authentic representation also doesn't overemphasize race. Like John Blake in his interview spoke about how people tend to think that biracial people just sit around all day. Like, am I black? Am I white? Am I Asian? <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's, so it's like, how do you showcase the life of a person who might be going about their day and doing whatever, but then someone's like, oh, what are you? You know, like these interruptive moments, perhaps, that come about as a result of race. But also, I mean, I've had that happen to me throughout my life, and I've never gone home and sat on my bed and cried about it and needed to process it five times, right? So it's how do we showcase these things that happen while also perhaps not 
diminishing or magnifying the, because I think part of the experience of race is that these things are very continual. It's not like you just have an episode about what it is to be biracial or something in a TV show, and then the person processes it once, and then they never revisit it again. Like, I just feel like it's a hard line. I loved when your brother Ian was speaking about the artist who created those cards and would give those cards out. The artist's name, by the way, is Adrian Piper regularly calling people out for the racist things that they said and did. Because to me, that kind of thing is so much of what I think these interventions around race ought to look like, that, like a recognition that these things are going to come up and they're going to come up repeatedly. And even well-intentioned people are going to make gaffes. And like, how do we, as a society, like how do we create a culture that uses art, that uses representation, that uses role models in a way that actually does change the culture around how people's experiences of their lives, like in regards to their sense of wholeness. And I don't think we do a good job of that currently, but I do think we do a better job of that. One of the cultural creators whose work has furthered that mission is John Blake, who I just loved interviewing and who authored the book More Than I Imagined, What a Black Man Discovered About the White Mother He Never Knew. I mean, I think I go back to the the John Blake interview and conversation, and I've really been thinking about that just a ton, particularly the moments with his aunt and just how how much our what we can project about our identity and about racial differences and uh, assumptions, how they're so can be so formed by our families, but also heightened. And the misunderstandings are like magnified. And just the story of those letters that his aunt wrote him that he never read and and then coming to them later in life and realizing that there's an opportunity there. I don't know, it was such a powerful story of like redemption and just the possibility of change. Yeah, there was a quote that John shared in our interview, but that didn't make it into the final episode. But he talked about, and he's sort of written about this, but this idea of, well, if you tell people that racism is a problem and you basically point to all of these societal evils and ills, but you don't give them something to do, like you're really, like it's really fatalistic, you know? And so he talked a lot about how do we, both acknowledge the current state of race relations in our nation and the devastating impact that it has on people's lives to be in these systems of supremacy and ostracization and just all of these things, right? That reminds me of another thing from John's interview that didn't make it into an episode. It's a story he shared in relation to something that we did include, which was his explanation of the reconciliation with his Aunt Mary. To connect the dots here, John spoke about the ineffectiveness of facts to persuade people to change their views on race, and instead the importance of manifesting those changes through our interpersonal connections with others, whether those people are related to us or whether they're strangers. I'm like a reporter. I'm writing about race. I'm covering Rodney King. I'm seeing all this denial about racism among white people, and now I'm seeing it right in front of my face from my aunt. So finally one day I ask her, why didn't you reach out to me when I was younger? Was it because I was black? And she said, no, it wasn't because you're black. It's because you weren't Catholic. That's the reason. We were raised to not associate with non-Catholics. My mom was just part of an Irish Catholic family. And that, that answer only angered me. 
because I knew she was lying, but she couldn't admit her racism. And then I just wrote her off. I just went on about my life, becoming a journalist, writing about race, forgetting her. But she kept on writing me all these letters year after year. And I would open them. There would be no apology. And then I started not opening them. And I put them in a little plastic box under my desk where they just grew into a mound. So one day I had a little weird experience. I had my own racial reckoning, so to speak. I went to a Lowe's home improvement store to get some paint for my deck. And when I went in there in the morning, there were two Lowe's employees behind the counter. One was white, one was black. The white person was on the phone. The black person wasn't talking to anyone. I waited for about five or 10 minutes until the white man was off the phone. And then I went up to him and said, what's the correct paint for my deck? He gave me some paint. I took it back home. I poured it out into the tray. And then it turned out to be this rainbow colored gook. It was the wrong paint. And then it hit me. I didn't get the right color because I couldn't see past color. I had racially profiled that black man. I had assumed that he wasn't as competent as the white man. And I was like, wow, here I am. I've interviewed people like Ibram Kendi, Robin DiAngelo, White Virgilia. I read all these books about racial bias and all that. But in that millisecond, that racism infiltrated my mind. And then I thought about my Aunt Mary. I said, like, you know what? Maybe you should show her a little grace. Look at the world that she grew up in. John's story will stick with me for a long time, maybe my whole life. And that's because it crystallizes the need to be honest and factual and confronting race, like a journalist would be, but also the need to be open-minded and empathetic, no matter what race or races we are. Wrestling with how to strike that balance was something Darylise and I touched on in one of our conversations. How do we acknowledge that and not sugarcoat it while at the same time giving people a sense of hope that there's things that can be done and equipping them to move forward. And for me, what really stood out in that episode, in addition to John, in addition to Tyler, in addition to Ian, like all of which were amazing. Like, I was so glad we were able to have those conversations. But Lisa Funderberg spoke about internalizing these messages from her dad and the book that she compiled of other people's stories. I think Apple's Trees, Writers on Their Parents. I'll look up the title. The title is Apple Tree, Writers on Their Parents. She just really spoke about kind of the messages that we internalize on the basis of the racialized experiences that our parents have had and the value of that. But also, I think when it comes to multiracial experiences, that's a really interesting thing, at least for me to think about, right? Because if I internalize my parents' racialized experiences, well, my walk in the world, because of going back to the previous thing that we talked about, about appearances, like my walk in the world is different than my parents' walks in the world. And so how do I make sense of that? So yeah, that's something I've been thinking a lot about. I often think about my identity and like owning all the aspects of my identity as embracing my parents, but I'm very aware that my lived experiences are so different than both of their experiences because of my biracial identity. So it's like, how can I honor both being black and white and recognize that for me personally, there's this in-between category and experience that I've had that is neither black nor white, really. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think you said that really well and well in the episode just about, yeah, it's, confusing. I mean, it's confusing for everyone, I think, in the family for that reason. 
because you want to relate and we all i think do who at least grew up with parents in our lives want to relate to them but also just recognizing yeah that in some ways you can't and in some ways you can I don't know that I can always relate to my parents, but I do know that this podcast made me feel a strong sense of relating to my brother and myself and those we interviewed. Me too. And it opened up a conversation with my sister that's continued to be ongoing. Although I swore to her that I'm done recording our chat, so I'll keep what we've talked about since to myself. I really love you and I'm glad that I'm really glad we had this conversation. Me too. I Are didn't you? mind that it was recorded. Well, I still <laughs> mind a little bit. Would have been fine having the conversation just me over lunch or something, but yeah, fine. Uh, all right. Well, when I come visit you, let's have this conversation like part two okay. over lunch, or we can just have it anytime and I promise I won't record it. Thanks, <laughs> I'll keep your phone so I can just check that you haven't pressed the record button. That's true. All right. Well, I love you. On Being Biracial is funded by the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, a partnership of 29 local newsrooms focusing on issues that affect the daily lives of Philadelphia residents. The PJC is dedicated to bridging the divide between communities and journalists and increasing community-centered, solutions-based journalism that promotes inclusivity and equity in news reporting. To learn more, visit resolvephilly.org PJC. In the last conversation Darylise and I had, reflecting back on the season, we got introspective about how racial attitudes have changed, and it all came full circle. So Darylise, we started off the season by talking about this Time Magazine story, along with Lisa's book, both of which came out about 30 years ago. And I'm wondering, what do you think, if anything, the conversation around multiracial identity, a lot of what we talked about on the podcast, where do you think it's going to be in the next 30 years or 30 years from now? That's such a great question. And I'm going to be wildly speculative. But Malcolm, there was some research that you had found about how more people like coming from multiracial backgrounds start identifying monoracially after a certain number of generations. To set the record straight and give one more shout out to our amazing producer, Emily Previty, she was the one who found the research, not me. But what it looked at was multiracial identification through generations. And generally, they found that the child of two monoracial parents was most likely to call themselves mixed or biracial, and subsequent generations were less and less likely to do so, more often choosing a monoracial label. I think multiracial identity will still be a thing. I think that people will still identify differently who come from similar backgrounds. But I guess I think that these conversations hopefully will be more ubiquitous and that there will be more recognition of non-binary identities and experiences. But I don't know that racial categories are ever going to go away. I don't know that people will ever feel completely mirrored and seen in terms of their identities and experiences. And that's not just for multiracial folks. I think that's also true for people who hold a non-binary gender identity or people who maybe have a, a hidden disability or people, you know, anyone outside of whatever is determined, like the socially prevalent narrative of what identity looks like, I, I think we'll always kind of maybe have some question mark experiences, but 
I would hope that there are more and more places where people can feel seen and more and more stories and more representation. But I don't know. I think identity will continue to change and shift and evolve. And I think these conversations will still be relevant. Lisa said in her interview, in some ways, things have changed very, very much from 30 years ago when she did her book, Black, White, Other. And in some ways, they've changed not at all. And I would imagine that 30 years from now, there will be ways that people look back and cite how things are vastly different and also very much the same. I really thought about that research as well, which really pointed to this idea that the first generation of multiracial children in a family are the most likely to identify as such. And then each subsequent generation of either same race parents or, or only one parent who ends up being multicultural, they're actually more likely to identify monoracially. So yeah, I think that that could very well be the case in that we're becoming more and more mixed. That's going to be happening regardless and obviously has happened over thousands of years, right? But that how race is applied or instructed might might actually continue to look relatively the same. But all that being said, I still think that the experience is going to get a lot more, perhaps more contours around it, thankfully, due to all these things. And all these things remain a prevalent part of the lives of biracial people, ourselves included. Can I tell you something that happened to me today? Like, yeah. Because I think it really fits with what we're talking about. Or maybe I just want to vent about I don't know. I just love <laughs> your, your insights about it. So today I went to this place where I go quite often to get like a, a takeout order. And so I went up to the counter and I ordered my takeout food to go. And I was just waiting. And there's a TV. And I was kind of like watching the news. And there were two people who were sitting in this place eating their lunch. And... One of them said to me, he's like, hey, uh, so what are you? What's your background? Hmm. And I was like, uh, what do you mean? And he goes, well, we bet, like we bet on like what your background is. And so what are you? And I oh, said, I'm, I'm black and white. And he goes, I win, you know, and <laughs> his friend said, you know, oh, I thought you could be Ukrainian or like, I don't, I thought you could be something else. And it was just really, it was so interesting because here we're having these conversations or doing this work, but it just really brought home how common that experience yeah. has been throughout my life. And yet, you know, there are times when I enjoy that experience or I feel like it's like a good opportunity to have a conversation. And then there's times when like, I just want to get my lunch and I don't, yeah, <laughs> I don't just really want to do be not a subject engage. of speculation. So yeah, <sighs> I guess I don't, I don't know, but it, it's interesting that like, here we are recording the conclusion of all these wow. seasons of episodes and I was like, oh yeah, okay, the same thing still happens. The what you are you can't avoid it. No, you can't. You can't. Some things, yes, yeah, we sit just we're talking about some things will change and some things will not. <laughs> some things apparently. will not. Thank you for joining us for this season and for listening to our in-depth explorations of multiracial identities and experiences. We could never have done this season without you. So thank you for listening, for sharing, for rating and reviewing the podcast and for telling your friends and loved ones. Or even the clueless people in your lives too. We'll take any listeners we can get. To those of you listening, you're indispensable. And so are all of those who agreed to be interviewed this season. Since this is our final episode, we'd like to take the time to share full credits here. Thank you to all of this season's interviewees, Ashanti Martin, Azaria Keys, Barbara Idalis Abadia Rexash, 
Carter O'Brien Ford, Kat Dyson, Chantel Fitzgerald, Charlotte Gill, David Ryan Barcega Castro Harris, Drew Almond, Evan Fong Jeroff, Hannah Wallace, Ian Burnley, Jewel Love, John Blake, Jordan Davis, Kimberly Ortiz Hartman, Lisa Funderberg, Matt Johnson, Nura Elmarzuki, Rachel Goh, Rachel Lauren, Samante Cruz, Sandra Clark, Sarah Bella Rocha, Sarah Gaither, Sienna McWhorter, Tyla Taylor, Tyler Sloan, W. Kamau Bell, Zane Hassanain, and Mark Hugo Lopez. And thank you to all the people working behind the scenes for your logistical, financial, and editorial support. You made this season and this project possible. On the production side, thank you to producer, editor, and fact checker Emily Previty and her team at Cavenda Media, and Paul Kondo, audio engineer and producer. On the funding and logistical side, thank you to the Philadelphia Journalism Collaborative, powered by Resolve Philly, with a special thanks to Director of Collaborations, Jean Song. Without your economic support and advertising support, this project would not have been possible. Speaking of advertising, we owe a debt of gratitude to Word Radio for believing in this project and spreading the, pun intended, word for partnering with us to make this collaboration possible. And a very special shout out to Ashanti Martin, Nick Talaferro, and Eric Nixon. Thank you to other collab members, Philadelphia Neighborhoods, Technically, PGN, and G-Town Radio, who endorse this project and help spread the word. To Monica Lynn Graphic Design for creating our logo and branding, and to Zach James of Rebel Hill Consulting, who designed and created our website, onbeingbiracial.com. And thank you to everyone who visited the website and bought us a coffee. We'll put a link to our Buy Us a Coffee page in the show notes, in case you'd like to contribute. But by far the biggest contribution you can make is to listen and share. So thanks again, and be well.